0: Hey, welcome to the ninety seventh episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Matt Enlow, and I'm Warren
1: Kaplan, and today we are just uh, the two of us. We're talking, taking listener questions. We've got quite a few stockpiled up, and we are also just catching up. and We thought, why not do like an easy episode? Yeah, because sometimes you just got to treat yourself well. But also, we have really good questions. We have uh, a couple that I think are good just because. Uh, They are a little bit about what people think the film industry is like versus the reality of it. Uh, And we have a few questions or, you know, kind of favorite questions of like, how do you make the transition from part-time to full-time director? And, you know, basically, what is the grand answer to making it in filmmaking? The answer that Matt and I are still, you know, trying to figure out on a daily basis.
0: Um, But before we get into all of that, uh, let's pitch it over to our sponsors film casualty we sat down with our friend cameron from film casualty to talk a little bit more about the ins and outs of insurance and how the fine folks at film casualty could help us out hey cameron so when i sold my first
1: feature film i remember the distributor asked me if i had eno insurance and i had no idea what it was and i googled e n o and i found nothing uh, well, you, you found a
0: great ambient music artist, Brian Eno.
1: Oh, Brian Eno. Oh, yeah. I'd say okay ambient music hey, artist. Can you tell me what Eno Insurance is and why somebody might ask for it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Eno Insurance stands for Errors and Omissions. And it protects filmmakers from lawsuits pertaining to theft of idea, copyright, infringement, libel, invasion of privacy. This is basically an insurance coverage that is incredibly useful for protecting filmmakers against frivolous allegations of stealing. It's a coverage that also usually pays for attorney fees and the legal costs Uh, of defending you in the event that somebody does come after you. So you could imagine why this is an important coverage for when a distributor is initially purchasing your film and getting ready to share it with the world. They wanna protect their risk that someone's gonna come out of the woodwork and say, "Hey." You lied about me in this documentary. Or, hey, that's my story and here's the proof. And so this insurance oftentimes has really high deductibles, but it's really important for protecting the assets and the reputations of the distributors who are purchasing a film.
0: Cool. Thanks, Cameron. For more information about how to protect your film business, gear, project, and crew, go to filmcasualty.com slash just shoot it. That's filmcasualty.com slash just shoot it insurance for every kind of filmmaker boy what a good conversation that was right orin
1: yeah well actually the funny thing is i i called cameron today because i did this job did i tell you about this i did this job for ucla and i already finished the whole job but they have this rule where you can't be a vendor in their system unless you carry general liability insurance and so like they said, they'll pay me a little more money to cover the insurance because they knew I didn't have any, but then I had to get insurance. So I applied for it and Cameron is like really helping me navigate that. So I, I don't know. It's uh sometimes a lot of times like this insurance stuff is just like, just something you have to deal with, even though you don't want to. And it was kind of nice having someone to talk to instead of me Googling insurance right, which is like 8 billion google results and nothing that seemed obvious so you know cool. what's
0: so funny is today my brother called me he's a photographer up in the bay area and had just booked a gig where he was kind of like putting together a crew and like you know doing all of these portraits for this company and stuff and he was kind of like oh hey i kind of need insurance for this and i was like funny you bring that up i too have a connection so I guess advertising works, at least with the people who <laughs> yeah, have Yeah, the very podcasts. least film <laughs> casualty so got funny. the
1: two of us as, as clients. Um, so, Matt, before we get into the listener questions, can you just riddle me this? What have you been working on
0: lately? Mm, well, uh, I feel very excited because we're recording this on the Tuesday after Sundance, which basically means like it's New Year's Day. People are finally back in their offices. I, like I spent the last two weeks hearing like, oh, we'll get back to you, but everybody's in Sundance, man. Do you really Nobody. believe that? I mean, I, I believe that a, enough people are out of town that like you
1: think the people at Funny or Die or College Humor or go 90 or I mean, yes, I know there's like the the feature studios are there and. Amazon and Netflix, which, by the way, did not buy anything there.
0: They didn't buy anything. No. Yeah, which is interesting. But um, um,
1: but do you feel like the majority of like Hollywood, like kind of corporate Hollywood is there?
0: Uh, no, no. But if their legal counsel is there or their boss is there or, you know, like it just takes one person from an organization to just kind of throw a monkey wrench in everything.
1: Right. So I guess you can't get contracts done, but in terms of like getting to go in and pitch or setting up a meeting or... You know, having someone reach out to you and say, like, hey, I loved your web series. Can you have you thought of making it into a TV show? Like that stuff would still go on. Ostensibly. It, would,
0: it would still go on. But having the easy excuse of like, hey, man, Sundance or an agent being out of town, like oftentimes agents are out and you kind of like there were enough linchpins in the chain that certainly it's been a thorn in my side for two years running. And I'm always like so relieved when people are back in town. Yeah.
1: Last night. So last night we interviewed Pat Bishop and we talked about corporate jargon. And I think you just snuck three examples of it into that last sentence.
0: Ooh, hold on. So
1: thorn in my side? Yeah, that's the stretch.
0: Okay. Uh, back in town?
1: <laughs> no. Um, the linchpin. Wait, what, what are they then?
0: The linchpin. I'm guilty of it. Linchpin. Yeah, sure.
1: That's like a super corporate thing. And sure. Sure. Like There's a book the chain. about being the linchpin. Yeah. Lin-
0: yeah, and the chain.
1: But I've never actually noticed you use anything, but now that you pointed it out last night, I'm I'm in oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, high I sensitivity.
0: Say, <laughs> oh, yeah. I really... I, I hear myself, and I'm like, ugh. Linchpin
1: oh, well. is actually like a really good book, though, and I think it's by Seth Godin, right? Yeah, Seth Godin. Yep. So it's actually, yep. like, I would think it's a great book for directors, specifically, or most creative people that work on the like freelance creative side as opposed to like the development side, because linchpin is about what you can do to make yourself like in the grand scheme of things. It's like, if you have 20 people working for you and you have to fire 10 of them, you would never fire the linchpins in, at the company, right. you know? Right. And so as a director, it's like if you, if people have 20 directors to choose from and they need to, they're making three movies this year and they need three directors or three digital series or whatever it is, how can you be the linchpin? How can you be the person that like other people have mentioned? Like, Oh, if you could get Matt Enlow, you'd be super lucky. You know, saved. Yeah. Yeah. Like they have these really practical examples. Like, uh, if you're a waiter at a restaurant or a server at a restaurant and you remember people's names and they always, they request to be set in your section. Like when you have to cut the wait staff in half, like that person who has people requesting them is not going to get cut. So it's about reorienting your mindset to not just like, you're not just an employee you know, that's like collecting a paycheck, but you are instrumental to the functions of whatever project you're on. So I think as a director, that's something I like, I'm always thinking about. Like if I wasn't here with this, like I just did these commercials, you know, like we shot them pretty traditionally cause it's a pretty traditional campaign, a pretty traditional company, pretty traditional market. And then of course I think to myself, like, do I, do they, I even need to be here, <laughs> you know, it's sometimes. Yeah, certainly be, I have that thought on commercial sets because right. just, yeah like, oh. there's so many notes and clients and you're you're in control to some degree but a lot of times you are just following directions and you are not a linchpin and if you died on set they would finish the commercial and it would probably be about the same as what you did basically identify, if you yeah. lived through it anyway sorry for that yeah. uh, derailment oh, no. but yes no, no. back to uh, the fascinating world of contracts
0: <laughs> contracts well yeah so people finally got back into town and uh I'm dealing with a a handful of contract negotiations and I realize that's not a thing that we've really ever talked about because I think most of the time you and I, the negotiation is pretty straightforward because it's a work for hire, right? So, uh, when it's work for hire, you know, you don't own anything, you don't get any residuals, credits aren't really negotiated very much, you know, like on townies, I negotiated my credit, but like for the most part, it's just pretty cut and dry. Right. Right. Um, On commercials or branded content, things like that. Um, But since this is a show that I created, all of a sudden, uh, there's all sorts of different factors that you kind of have to think about or consider or like even um, decide that you don't care about. And it's interesting because the reason we always say the reason that we have management of any sort is so that they can kind of help with this exact sort of problem. Because there's a part of me that's like, just give me some money and I'll go make it. Sounds fun, right? But yeah. um, you don't get to retire or um, you know even buy a house if you don't actively care about and protect those rights, basically.
1: Well, a lot of the people we have on the podcast, and they would probably include us in the, the, that level of director. Like if we got like a Netflix show or a Comedy Central show or to direct SNL or a Big reboot of a sci-fi series like we would want to get paid as much as we possibly could but we would do it at any price you know and yeah. it's like that's yeah. that's i think why we don't talk about negotiations that much because it's like what you have a Netflix show like i would pay to have a Netflix show you know yeah um so it's like you <laughs> you start the negotiations off in such a horrible place cuz you want it so bad i think like once you've done like 10 shows or 10 movies or whatever for money that's when you can either negotiate a lot more money, or if you are not that into the project that somebody wants you for, <laughs> that's when you have the, you know, the most
0: strength because you can just walk away and nothing—you've right. lost nothing. You know, I think not to talk too much about the money part because I think like the other op aspects of it, I think are even more interesting. But I feel like um, I'm generally pretty loosey goosey with that stuff. Um, you know, like if the creative is exciting or. And as, if the creative ex, is exciting and as long as we have the resources to pull off the idea adequately, I'm pretty game to do it, right? But have you ever gotten lowballed on a gig and then you walk onto set and you're like, oh, look, there's a trailer. And, uh, you know, this team is much bigger than I was originally anticipating. And, oh, they definitely did have the money to pay me my rate. I've definitely been lowballed
1: and every person that works in Hollywood will tell you what's so bad about being lowballed? And it's that it's like, uh, they're setting a standard for the entire production. Like if they're offering you like a hundred bucks to come direct for the day, a commercial or something, then you know that like the DP and the grips and all those people are getting no money either. And that you're not going to have resources and it's, what you're making is just not going to match what you want to make. So that's like why the respect you want to
0: show your crew for sure.
1: But that's why like the low ball. I think is usually like, it's such a giant turnoff, but in terms of like being low balled and then going to set and seeing like, Oh, we have like a techno crane and all this stuff. Yeah. It's happened like in a kind of weird way. Like I've come and been super conservative and I'd be like, Oh, it would be cool to have a steady cam here, but I know we have no money. And then, the producer will say, like, oh, yeah, we could we can get a steady cam. Let me call you. Yeah, I, I got a friend that can do it for like 800 bucks. And I'd be like, oh, I was not aware that we had like uh, any room in the budget because they had told me that this, that's why I'm getting paid so little, you know? Mm-hmm. You know who's amazing at that low budget spiel is <laughs> our buddy Evan. <laughs> Every project starts out like it can be a $10 million commercial shoot. And he'll be like, listen, we're really, you know, we thought the budget was Just- good, but it's like, it's really tight. Like they're just asking for. All yeah, this we're just crazy tied stuff. on the dollars, is what yeah. I'd say. But yeah, so I, I've been in that situation, but I've had like the opposite situation with actors before, especially when I've done non-union stuff, where an actor will get the job and they know they're getting like three hundred bucks for the day, and it's non-union, and they're like a good actor, and they're like, mm-hmm. ugh, like what am I doing? I regret doing this. And they walk on set and they're like, oh, there's a dolly, and there's this, and there's that, and they're like, oh, this is like a real thing. It might actually be good. Like I've had that experience where people are pleasantly surprised, and then afterwards, like, upset that they weren't paid enough. <laughs> yeah, they're like, but, "Wait a minute!" Yeah, but I think anyone being on a good set is like happy initially. Yeah, that's right. true. That's true.
0: Yeah, including us. Yeah, I, I think as long as long as the that's why I like to get paid off as a percentage, basically, because then the you budget. know of the budget, then you know it's commensurate with. Um, well, so the obviously, size of the production. you don't need to
1: tell us what you're asking for on this project but in general what is it in your mind what is an appropriate percentage for a director to get of the budget uh let's that's interesting it, let's say it's a hundred thousand dollar uh one day like digital spot yeah
0: i mean i think to me the starting position is always 10 percent. right now uh again a lot of it comes down to how ambitious the project is relative to everything else and what my crew is going to be making, et cetera, et cetera. So if it was a hundred thousand dollar branded spot, you know, 10%, that's 10,000 bucks. That's, um, less likely to happen because you, you know, you need to put that money elsewhere on screen. And like, it's more valuable to me to, uh, still make a good living, but also not, um, have a spot that sucks. I don't need sucky spots basically. Right. Or are you
1: ever like on a low budget shoot and you go out to dinner and everyone's like ordering a ton of drinks and the producer is like, we got it. The production's got it. (laughs) Or you just see them feeding like all the production people like for a full week, like breakfast, lunch and dinner, which is totally awesome. But also like, wait, yeah, this person is leaving work right now. Do you need to get them tender greens? Yeah. yeah, Right. Um,
0: That's funny. Or like when they fly out and then they're staying at a fancy hotel yeah and it's like oh like your hotel bill is equal to an additional day of shooting that money stuff is interesting but it
1: I think it just always goes back to a case-by-case basis and yeah in my mind there's like a certain amount of money like a minimum amount of money I would like to make per day and mm-hmm. then um, like then I'm working at all and on commercial shoots you know you're usually paid by, based on shoot days so I have a rate for that but it's it's very flexible <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I think the interesting thing about this is because I created the show and will be directing every episode and show running, there's kind of more pieces to the puzzle than normal, and so you're kind of figuring out, well, okay, you know, how much is the Bible worth, and how much is the original idea worth, and how much is my EP rate, and what are revisions worth and what happens when we put together a writer's room instead of me writing the entire series myself, all of those sorts of things you have to figure out in advance uh, of signing those contracts because that locks you in like seasons two, three, four, they're all locked in with a specific pay raise for each of those different parts of the equation. And so um, that's really where the fastidiousness of your team can really be helpful and and the experience right so they're there to help you navigate uh things you wouldn't even think of you know
1: yeah something i used to see a lot when like um i was making kind of lower budget digital shows like for adam film and stuff they would give you like ten thousand dollars an episode go make three episodes or something um and we would i had like on that show i had a co-creator and so we kind of decided to split the money down the middle and i was directing and he was acting and we were both writing together but then at the end of the day, I was doing like all the editing, all the notes, all the visual effects, all the like technical stuff. And um, I mean, that project was super cool and easy because I'm like really good friends with this person. But I've seen situations where one person is just doing so much more work than everyone else, but is like getting paid the same. Mm-hmm. And that's like really why you have to split it up. Even if it's one person as a director, editor, producer, writer, like you got to split it up into Each those, of those four roles. Yeah, yeah, because then like the main actor, uh, if it's like you and your friend that's an actor, you're splitting the money 50-50, but you're doing like 100 times as much work right, as Right,
0: right. But it's also a tricky thing because sometimes if it were the hypothetical situation of like an actor and a director, that actor could be, you know, have a, a following of some sort and, and bringing that is also additional value as well. Oh, for so sure. It's not just how much time are you, how many hours are you putting in, but also what is, what's the precedent or the, um, you know, the uh, added value that they're bringing to the project as well. Um, And so, yeah, that's the other reason why it's nice to have people who are kind of arguing on your behalf is so that it doesn't get personal. Right. And they it when it gets personal. (laughs) Uh, The final note I'll make about, uh, about this contract just to kind of, we always like to talk about how long things take for people. So this is a show that I uh, have been working on for years now, and boy, I must have talked about it like a year and a half ago now. I sold yeah. it a year and a half ago. That company went away. I got it back, or that division dissolved, I should say. And then um, I sold it again last summer, like right around CVNT fives production time and i just got the contract last week right well at least you're rich for selling it so many times i'm rich no i'm not but i think um or like when we had pat bishop on it sounds like a large sum of money but when it's like you know a few years of your life um that's why you have to have so many different things going at once and uh yeah, why sucks. we like so to- why you gotta drive uber between your meetings <laughs> just kidding well i hope i hope that gets done quickly me too. I think I have a hunch that everything's going to happen all at once. We'll cool. see what happens, but I can't wait to talk about it on the show. Oren, um, yeah, I would love to know you had a big shoot. What have you been working on lately?
1: Yeah, I had the shoot in Houston. I think I talked about it quite a bit. Um, it was fun. It was two days. It was like, uh, it was hard. You know, <laughs> we had a crew. Some of them were really experienced. Some of them, I don't know if they'd ever done their the job before the day that they were on set. Uh, And, you know, as we all know, like every shoot is ambitious. We were shooting four commercials, but they each had 15 and 30 second versions that Mm -hmm. were different from each other. So we're really shooting eight commercials in two days at two different houses with 13 different actors. And um, yeah, it was, it was tricky, you know, because you like, it's me, the producer and the DP. Those are the only people from LA and everyone else is, from houston and it's a mixed bag you know there's like some people that are like union members that worked like for paramount for 40 years and moved to houston you know right um right. and then there's i don't know it's so it was and fun, people it was really, who were new yeah yeah and then on top of that there's just like clients and agency and people that you know that have their own things that their own goals you know i think when you and i are on mm-hmm. co- directing commercials we want it to be like a super funny vibrant cool different unique commercial But like, for instance, one of the things I wanted to do is shoot handheld. You know, I've been talking a lot about handheld versus uh, sticks. And so I only shot one of them handheld because it felt like very modern family. Like this dad is like trying to show his wife and son this thing that he's like trying to impress them with and they're not impressed at all. And I just wanted like a real subtle handheld look. And, you know, the client, you know, kind of like a traditional conservative like company that's been around for, I don't know, 50 years or something in Houston and, They, the the owner of the company was like at the monitor, and he's like, "This is just shaky. Like, why is it shaky? Like, he could not figure out like why the camera was shaking." And we're like, "Well, it's like (laughs) handheld," but the client was so far away from me that I wasn't really getting this till about halfway through shooting that spot. And then the ad is like, "Hey, Oren, they're saying uh, they just don't like what the camera's doing. They're just saying it's way too shaky." After we'd already shot like half the coverage already, so I told our DP, I was like, "Uh, can you hold it more still?" And he's like, "No." (laughs) <laughs> it's A very heavy cab- camera. He had the easy rig. Do you know what that is? Uh, sure, yeah. But um, for uh,
0: listeners at home, the easy rig is like uh, it's like a backpack that has like a crane. That ca- crane maybe sounds dramatic. But like, it, like an arm hooks, that comes. Yeah, an arm over your head. Yeah, exactly. And then a little cord that zips down and mounts the the camera to it. So um, like a bungee
1: cord. Basically, yeah. takes a camera that weighs fifty pounds and makes it weigh. 25 pounds in theory,
0: yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. It kind of it distributes the weight across your whole body. So it's not quite so gnarly. It yeah. also is neat. Like, I don't know if Jess gets a little, um, reckless with it, but I, I know DP sometimes will kind of swing it around a little bit.
1: Yeah. or you just can like get a little, camera. yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, or, or like, even as a move, kind of like push it away or like you can, cause it's on basically a pendulum. And so right. you can get a little, a little zany with it, which can be fun. And yeah, cool.
1: we didn't do that Well, we were, as it wouldn't was be saying, like having suppose, the opposite yeah. problem, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he, the, the easy rig is really cool if you want like a handheld look, but you have like a big heavy camera and you kind of want to be, it's like between handheld and a steady cam. <laughs> so when I was pitching to the agency, I mentioned, I wanted to do some handheld, just like energize the frame a little bit. And they were like, okay, like they didn't seem to be for it or against it. So I just did it. <laughs> and then, um, Anyway, that's just, that could happen on a shoot in LA also. But on top of that, there was just like a little bit of a sentiment of like, a t- I mean, a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of this is how we do things here. Like, hmm. so just kind of, can you just do them the way that will make us happy instead of the way that you want to do them? And that even came down to wardrobe. Like, I really wanted, I love the, you know, layers. And our wardrobe person, who's like amazing, said that she's like, there's like this commercial uh, uniform for women. It's like a, blouse and a cardigan Mm -hmm. right yeah like a plain blouse and a cardigan that's like every woman in every commercial is wearing that and so i like that and for men a lot of times like like a button down kind of casual button down with like a vest looks cool like layers always looks good look good so i was like really pushing for it and they're like well in houston people like don't wear vests (laughs) like yeah yeah and i was like yeah but we just want it to look good anyway whatever so it was fun, but I saw the cuts today and they're coming along really well. And they the agency is like really including me in all the editing, which is like so super awesome. So I'm excited about it. Um, and then just one other thing just to get super insidey and, you know, talk about things that probably shouldn't talk about, but I can't think of why. Uh, but just tying it back to what you were saying, the contract negotiations and things. So in commercials, there's like, you know, you get a, a rate for per day, and this was a two-day shoot and they we'd started working on everything before i even knew what my rate was which i mean i'm sure you've been in that same boat many a time sure like you have no idea how much you're getting paid and you have to be that like dickhead that's like um by the way like what's what am i getting paid on this like when you're on the scout or something you know um and when they told me when i was getting paid it was like it was fine it was like great rate but it was like a little lower than i expected mm-hmm. and um
0: yeah that's the worst is you ha- when you have in your mind the rate that you think you're gonna get right and no my when i had my mind high or low yeah
1: yeah it was based on a previous job i did with the same company right um right. so i was like so the producer was like is that okay and i was like yeah no it's totally fine obviously i'm gonna do it like i'm excited super excited about the project the great rate and everything i was just expecting like a little bit more And this isn't like a move. It was just me being like honest, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, in the end, they're going to see if they can get me a little bit more. So I guess the lesson here, and and this is probably the fourth or fifth time that this type of thing has happened, is it's not about being a dick or like trying to extract more money. It's just about like when you feel like you're getting a little less than you expected, like just mention it like don't threaten it's not an ultimatum but sure um people like a lot of times will want you to be happy with with your rate and also um you know i'm working probably more than i need to on this job because i want it to be good and i think if they end up paying me like a little bit more i think they'll feel like it was like a good move because i am sure putting in a lot of extra work on it so yeah money point is Ask for more if you feel like you're being underpaid. And if they say no, then just say, cool. Well, maybe next time, you know. I mean, maybe next time I'll get paid more, but you can still do the job. Anyhow. Well, enough about contracts and money and all these uncomfortable things. Let's uh, jump into a new iTunes review we just got from a real stranger.
0: Yeah. This guy's name is Al Rick. Al Rick. Just kidding, everyone. That's our old pal, Al Rick Purcell. Yeah.
1: Who has a podcast making movies is hard with Timothy plane
0: i think that's right and Um,
1: uh and it's awesome you guys should check it out and he already came to our live show
0: yeah thanks buddy which was really nice so he wrote if you're a filmmaker this podcast is for you oren and matt provide a wealth of information for filmmakers who are just getting started in their careers as well as insight for working professionals the variety of guests they bring on the show is excellent so you always end up getting a fresh perspective each episode also, the non-guest episodes are great too. Oh, good, because that's what this is. Uh, so don't just skip those; <laughs> skip the solo ones. Those are some of the best episodes of the show. Stop reading this review. Subscribe and dive into a deep pool of filmmaking knowledge. Hey, thanks, man.
1: Yeah, I think he makes some really good points there. <laughs> yeah, uh, just kidding. I mean, not kidding, but kidding. Sorry. Thanks, no, sorry. All right. Uh well, If you want right.
0: your review, uh, if you want your review read out loud on the show, I highly recommend leaving us a review. I'll tell you what, it's real fun to hear your name on a podcast you listen to. It is a genuine delight.
1: You were on Mark Marin. Who are you on? Script
0: Notes. Script Notes. I wrote a question into Script Notes. And um, yeah, I was really excited about it. Yeah, I think uh, Craig even corrected my grammar in the question.
1: Oh, such a great move. Um, Cool. uh, Well, let's let's get into these questions.
0: Oren, I'm going to put you on the spot, buddy. Did you write an iTunes review for another show?
1: Look. The, this episode is already running along. I can't go into explaining <laughs> how many iTunes reviews I wrote or did not write. You,
0: okay, you're still you're still workshopping it. I get you. I get you. Yeah. Um, Damn it. Well, I can't can't wait to to read your opus of a review. Yeah. What if episode. I write one review and then
1: like we get like a hundred reviews and it turns out that I've been. <laughs> plugging up the review chain on our podcast this whole time well let's jump into some questions it's question time so our first question comes from willie bass griffin by the way we will mispronounce all names (laughs) apologies apologies in advance or willie bass griffin uh willie says good evening oran and matt i'm currently in my last few months of school at the la film school in hollywood my schooling has prepared me for everything from developing scripts to post-producing sound but it did not however prepare me for landing a job in directing I know there are a number of ways into the industry. My question is, what is the best way to commercial directing? I've already been shooting most of my shorts as commercials anyway, trying to tell stories in 30 to 40 second slots. Should I be looking at interning at some production company until a director seat opens up? Or maybe I should be applying now before I actually graduate. Any help would be amazing. Thanks again for the podcast. Um, Well, thanks for the question, Willie. Uh, Matt and I actually brought it up last night. We saw each other and... Um, we had some different, you know, kind of instincts on it. I had thought that like interning in a production company to wait for a director spot to open up seemed, um, to put it mildly, like kind of like insane. But Matt told me that that exact thing actually happened with him. That
0: literally did happen to me, um, which I wouldn't bank on. There was a lot <laughs> of luck that ended up happening. But I'll, you know, Willie, just to give you the the story. I was interning at the director's bureau, which I cold called. They weren't like, there wasn't like a, a form to become an intern or anything like that. And, and I the should director's also say.
1: Bureau is like the super, super awesome production company that has really amazing directors on it that does do giant music videos and commercials.
0: Yeah. I kind of, I looked up like who are my favorite people doing music videos and commercials right now. And then I figured out, Oh, these ones are really great. And then I cold called them and, um, they were like yeah come on in hang out um which i don't think that they would be so blase about now because uh you know there was a lawsuit a couple years back um from an intern on black swan who basically had decided to leave the industry and so he was like hey interns are being exploited this isn't fair like i'm not actually learning anything going to get coffee for people and like this is exploitation and so now uh corporations in particular have gotten much more stringent on how their um internship systems work basically. So, yeah, so things have changed a little bit, but yeah, I was just kind of hanging out and um there was a small music video that came in and uh I had been I'd been there for kind of a while, like maybe a year and a half at this point. So, I had a decent relationship with a handful of the people there. I'd made myself helpful and useful Um, and like I was attentive, even if I was a little bit of a nerd, you know? And so, and you made it very clear that you're a director or I made it very clear that I was a filmmaker specifically to the video commissioner. And I, I had made a reel that was not very good. It was quite bad. I would say it had like some spec stuff and like some student films and, you know, I burnt a DVD and made it look as good as I could. And one of the things that I had on it was, um, uh, light bright stop motion animation you know music videos were very gimmicky especially at the time um and so anyway uh the video commissioner was like hey matt there's a five thousand dollar video which back then was even less money than it is now right. um and she was like You're like you, like you, you... get t- 10 minutes of film to shoot it on <laughs> yeah i mean we shot it on that little panasonic tw- panasonic 24p camera um and then on a point shoot <laughs> digital camera that i had but uh myself and another director, this guy, Andy Bruntel, who uh, has gone on to great things and is a super good director. We kind of divided up the work and co-directed it together and we just kind of hung out. For Rilo Kylie, right? For Rilo Kylie, yeah. Yeah. But so that was literally because no one else wanted that job and literally every other director was working. Like 100% of that roster was on multi-million dollar campaigns and I had, put in some time there and the video commissioner liked me and knew that I was trying to make a name for myself. Um, but so you can't bank on that, but the thing that I think is really helpful and I think would really help you out, Willie is there's a lot of value in understanding the way the business works, but like who the players are, what sort of style you like, just kind of like sharpen some pencils as they say you know just be around be helpful and learn the rules of the game a little bit and then you'll be ready to uh shoot additional spec work and kind of graduate up slowly
1: yeah i mean i guess my experience is just totally different from that like there is maybe kind of that apprenticeship uh idea i just i think it's just so rare nowadays i know when i like first moved to l.a i knew a bunch of people that were working at like various vaults for production companies. And then they got to shoot little things and pitch little things. And they got, they just, you know, built their community out with these like commercial and music video people. Um, so, you know, anyway, I would definitely like look up a bunch of production companies. Uh, if you don't know any, then it's like a good exercise to figure out how to find them because it'll kind of open up your eyes to a whole different world than like the film and TV world. Um, and then, you know, try to see if, if like there's job postings or if you can do an internship or anything. Um, But honestly, my, like how I would approach it is I would probably just shoot spec commercials, trying to do small branded stuff, you know, make the commercials for friends or, you know, if you have a friend that like is a tech entrepreneur and needs a commercial for their app that they're trying to sell, like do something like that. I think it's like, ultimately in commercials it's all about the real and building the real uh, plus what matt's saying which is like being in the right place at the right time and being a person that people trust so it, well, i think i would
0: say sorry in addition to being at the right place in the right time I don't, that's not a thing that you necessarily can bank on um like that's that was pure luck and most of the time that's not going to happen but what i think is really really valuable is un- if you understand the the players and the way the business works, you'll understand what specs are more valuable to shoot and what I think you'll get smarter and more tactical about the way that you craft your career by observing other people's up close.
1: Yeah, it it really, really helps, at least for me personally, to like love commercials and love advertising and care, like realizing that ultimately you're trying to sell a product, you know? It's not about just making cool videos. So I'm actually going to, I think I just thought of my unpaid endorsement right now. And it's an advertising related book that I will talk about at the end of the episode. So um, yeah, so good luck with that. But I think, you know, we kind of always go back to the old adage of like build a network of filmmakers that are doing similar things to what you want to do. Make stuff, show it to people. Don't be shy, show people your bad stuff and just keep making it better and better. And ultimately, you'll get work. Um, but yeah, I, I wish it was as easy as like applying to a job in a production company and waiting, waiting for a spot
0: to open up. Cool. Good luck, Willie. Keep us posted. All right. Josh Tilton, Joshua Tilton wrote in. He says, hey, Oren, I just recently discovered your podcast and really enjoyed the inf- information you and Matt shared. I currently live in College Station, Texas. I'm 23 years old and have written three feature scripts, one spec TV script, and will be directing my first feature film this spring. I wanted to pick your brain a little bit and was just wondering. Three questions. Here we go. One, what's your biggest tip for maintaining tranquility on set? Two, what was the best move you've made for your career? Three, what would you think is the next step after I make my first feature? Thanks, Oren. Hey, Josh, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to answer these questions yeah. as well. Sorry, Josh. I shared, I shared your question with Matt.
1: <laughs> the jig I think, is up. I think that question came through my website, which is probably why I it's addressed right. to me. Right. But um, yeah, so let's just hit them one at a time. What's your biggest tip for maintaining tranquility on tranquility set?
0: Tranquility on set.
1: I mean, honestly, um, I don't care about tranquility on set,
0: Matt. Um, I, I care a little bit more, I think, probably. I maybe to a fault want people to have a, a good time and for things to feel good because I, I think that that can create better comedy and stuff. But I actually, over the last few years, have learned to care about that less. Um, there's a difference between um, maintaining your own tranquility on set and, and the set in general being tranquil. And I guess actually the answer is the same for either. If you are calm and if you keep your head together, then I think the rest of that attitude trickles down and, and the rest of the crew um, stays calm and tranquil and uh, focused. Uh, so I think my big tip actually is um, not delaying making a decision. You know, I, I take a second, I think about it. I think about, you know, it's a, even if it's a big, big, big one, I think about it. I make my decision. I, tell that to the team that needs to know it and I move on.
1: Yeah, for sure. And also just be really forthright with what makes you comfortable, like what you want. And we talked about this on the last episode, but it doesn't matter like what the right way to do it is. Like on my last shoot, the way that the notes were coming from the client to our set, I really didn't like. And I pulled the AD and the producer aside and I said, Hey guys, this notes process is not working for me. Let's try to do it like this. Instead, you talk to this person, you talk to this person, then you say it to me like, not in a mean way at all, but just like I could tell that there was like this element that was introducing this chaos that I didn't like um, and was mm-hmm. kind of setting off making the actors uncomfortable and just kind of slow and clunky. And so, you know, whenever you see something that's not working, go do it. Um, the one thing I I really wanted to do on this set on this last shoot, but it was only a two day shoot and I felt like weird doing it. So I didn't do it. But that Greta Gerwig, like name tag thing, like. I feel like every that should just become the norm on every set that
0: everyone just wears a name tag. It would just make life so much easier. Yeah. So that just to remind listeners, Greta Gerwig uh, picked up, I think, from Mike Mills, who was at the Directors Bureau, the uh, the trick of having name tags where every crew member has their name written out. Which I think when you're on like a student film, feels maybe a little less important because like you you're all classmates and you probably know each other. When you're a working director, you meet a brand new crew, you know, all the multiple time. times a year. Yeah. So, but it's not just for time. you. It's for like, let's say you have and that's 30 one people. person, like yeah.
1: one, like a new set dresser. Cause the set dresser you usually work with is isn't available. Sure. Like to me, they're like far away. I don't want to be like, Hey art person, art department. Can you move that? Yeah. Flower you just put down. I'd much rather say, Hey James, you know? Um, and I, if he had yeah. a name tag on, I would know his name was James. So uh, that's, I think something I haven't done yet, but I really want to do that. I do believe will kind of create just make things yeah a little more tranquil because people will just kind of address each other with a little more respect just because it will be easier to do do you uh do you carry a call sheet with you no i mean everything i carry i just lose instantly
0: yeah because i will uh in the morning i'll take my sides and a call sheet and i'll write my name on top of it and i fold it in half and put it in my back pocket you feel like a jerk sometimes when you need to like <laughs> right. check They're your, like, hey. your call sheet and like, and you're like unfolding uh, like, uh, yeah, yeah. You kind of have to like find a little moment and then go ahead and say it. But you know, in a pinch that can be helpful as well.
1: Yeah. There are certain positions that are like really important to know the names of the people like uh camera operators and ACs, you know? And if you mm-hmm. have like a three camera shoot, that's like six people on top of your DP um, that you need to basically be like, Oh, can you pan left? Can you do that? Can you go hair wider? Like, those types of things when you have more than one camera you can't just yell that out cuz you want to really direct it to a camera um you and know, you can say funny. a cam b cam c cam but then it, d- that, it feels it, impersonal yeah and yeah. i'd forget which camera's which
0: based on sometimes I, they'll move around and they're out of order so i don't know um how common practice this is but i remember actually i was a, a pa on a pickup day for thumbsucker mike mills's first um feature and i remember like running around or whatever and being super impressed by his ability to remember the name of all of the uh camera operators and stuff and then i realized someone had written the operator names on each corresponding monitor and then the ac as well yeah um and i wonder if that was a thing that he had requested or not but like that's certainly a thing worth doing
1: yeah i've seen um, that before but now i don't know if i've ever like of intellectualized it as much as now that you mention it now if yeah. I have more than one camera maybe I'll ask them to do that if they haven't already yeah. done it
0: yeah it's nice
1: cool well uh, let's uh, move on to cool. the next question
0: uh, uh yeah what was the best move you made for your career
1: um hmm I mean it's so hard to tell because you know these like our careers are kind of episodic you know you you get a jump mm-hmm. and then you kind of level up and then you go do and then you make something but uh, I, I think like buying a camera is obviously uh, like something that's super helpful. I think for everyone, but nowadays even with your iPhone, you can make some pretty yeah. great I, looking yeah, stuff. Yeah, I, I
0: never owned a camera, um, well, but I was around. It explains everything. A no, I'm just kidding. It does. It does. No, I, I think I would be a different filmmaker if I had owned a camera. Certainly.
1: Well, I feel like you um, you made Squaresville, which was a little bit more of a defining, like. It was kind of your your calling. Not it was a calling card, but also just like yeah. a proclamation. Like, hey, yes, I work in development. I work at Comedy Central, but this I am a filmmaker. You know, uh, and right. then you can go yeah. to a party, and someone someone asks what you do. You're like, I'm a director. You know, you don't say like, yeah. well, I'm yeah. a- aspiring to direct. And that that shift yeah. is like a really big move in everyone's career.
0: Yeah, and I I think also the scope of the series was really helpful because I think it's different if you're making a short or uh even a shorter web series um I see oftentimes really talented filmmakers nervous to proclaim like oh I I make movies or I make series or whatever I'm a director you know I think that um People get nervous about saying that or saying, oh, I'm a writer, but like saying like, oh, I made this series. It's, you know, feature length. It's 16 episodes long, plus all this ancillary content and stuff. And if we did two seasons, it took away any sort of trepidation about whether or not I was saying that I was director. So that was nice.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess just to double down on that, like proclamation of being a director, probably the best move I made is, uh. I was an engineer making short films in the Bay Area, and I just said, on this date, I'm moving to Hollywood, and I'm willing to lose it all, <laughs> you know, but I just I feel like I'll regret not doing this. Um, so making that Did you move, move on that date? Yeah. Well, my, sorry, sorry, I keep bringing everything back to money, but I had like a certain amount of money I wanted to save up before I moved to LA so that I wouldn't have to work for a little while. And so when I hit that amount of money, it was literally it coincided with like, annual reviews at the company i worked at and they're like here's your Mm. bonus and i was like did the math i was like okay i hit the number i was like awesome thank you i quit (laughs) um and then they (laughs) actually tried to not give me the bonus and i was like but isn't it for like my previous work and they're like well it's more to motivate you to do future work sure and to my boss's credit he he fought like all the managers and
0: they gave me the bonus so oh thanks yeah um so Uh, question three So Oren, this one, number three, what would you think is the next step after Josh makes his first feature? I
1: think after you make a feature, I mean, you know, we hear this answer all the time is you just got to keep making stuff, have scripts ready, go to festivals. I think that's really when like the parallel processing starts in your career. Mm -hmm. Like keep pushing the feature. A lot of people make the mistake of like they're so exhausted by the time they're done making the feature that they never like push it out into the world, you know? because they're so exhausted Mm -hmm. and you never know if your movie like paranormal activity. We talked about this movie before, like got rejected from every film festival and ended up being like a giant massive, like theatrical hit. So it's like just kind of making sure your movie connects with an audience, I think is important. Uh, And then also just using the momentum from that movie. Like let's say you made a movie about, you know, air guitars and then, you have a pitch about, like, a, some other, like, a musical, you know, then, it, like, see if you can kind of um, draft, drift, what's it called when you, like, you drive behind a car yeah. real close?
0: Uh, drafting. It's drafting. Yeah. yeah. Drifting
1: you, is when you skid and turn at the same time. Right. See if you can use your feature... Even if it's not done yet, even if it's like, we're just applying to festivals now, but we talked to like the guy at Sundance and he's like super stoked or I emailed Liz Manichel about this and she seemed positive. Um, Like, even if you're just there, like use that energy and excitement to talk to people about your other project. That's like somehow related to your first project, but
0: different in a really cool way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then you've got a trajectory, right? Then it's not, you're not just a one-off filmmaker. I would say, uh, you know, just imagine, you know, it's a tremendous amount of work to distribute your movie. So like doing the festival circuit, you know, that takes a lot of money and it takes a lot of your free time, you know, all of your vacation days, if you've got a day job or spent traveling to different places and then, you know, you're shaking hands with all these people and you're meeting all these other filmmakers. And so, you know, your time is precious and it's very easy to get caught up in that because it's super fun. Um, You know, when you're at those parties and you're with these other filmmakers, it's really ideal to be able to say, oh, this is the next thing I'm working on. And then then regardless of whether or not you're going to get a distribution from this dealer, from this person or not, you probably aren't, right? Right. 99% unlikely, right? But like you're still meeting these people, practicing your pitch, learning how to communicate about your film with them and uh, so that when it comes time to talk to somebody who can actually do something meaningful for your film, you're well rehearsed in how you talk about it. And also you've talked to a lot of other people and you've learned what you like about the way they present their film and maybe what you like less.
1: Yeah, and just I think always keep in mind that in general you don't want to, you don't want your career to be represented by one movie. You want mm-hmm. it to be represented by a trajectory, like Matt said. And so if you always keep that in mind in every conversation you have, um, this movie, this is what, I, why I love my movie, and this is why it's great, and this is what I learned, and this is like my next move. Um, I think it will be, will be helpful. So thanks, Joshua, for writing cool. in.
0: Yeah, way to go. I love uh, Texas filmmakers, man. So much Texas pride. College Station, shout out, 23, three feature scripts, the spec. Yeah. And he's directing his first feature this this spring. Go awesome. kill it, Josh. You're awesome. ahead of
1: the curve. So <laughs> whatever you do, it'll probably be fine. Um, so the next thing, it's not really a question. It's actually an email we got from James Oliver. He had sent us a pilot in a web series that he had directed. And he says here in his email, I'm just going to push my luck and send my web series pilot through. I'm directing an eight-part web series that I've written. I'm currently trying to pitch to production companies, agents, and potential sponsors for funding. I've attached a working draft of our pitch deck slash treatment. I have no experience with these really, so it'd be amazing if you could give me any notes on all that too. Thanks for your time. And so I looked at the, I watched the pilot and I looked at the treatment and the treatment was cool. It's like this psychedelic comedy with a lot of psychedelic music and visuals. It's... It's really neat, kind of like a like slacker, slackers meet train spot in a way. Um, but uh, I had written him back and I said, you know, to be honest, I don't know what pitching a web series like that you're already making and directing like. I'd never heard of a company buying a already made web series. Um, what's, what's your take on that, Matt?
0: Um, you know, I actually Squaresville we did we did just that actually uh which again it was like a lot of dumb luck i i didn't have a a proper pitch or anything but i'd met a um a person an owner of a company sarah penna who was uh I'd just started big frame at the time and she and i were on a panel together and i was like oh i've got this show and it's, i'm looking for a home for distribution for it and You know, I was like, hey, here's this awesome thing that's got all of this ancillary content and all of this heat and like a great uh, rollout strategy. And it just kind of made sense. Well, so Um, do you
1: think it would have made sense if there was no heat? Because that's kind of... We we get questions of this vein a lot or people just talk about this web series that they're making and they're hoping to sell and they're making all this presentational material for it. But I just don't know what value it has until it's on YouTube or Facebook or Vimeo or whatever and has the views. Um, Like Because you you didn't have to make a pitch deck for Squaresville to sell the tone and the characters and why people will like it because you can say like people actually like it. Here's the views, here's the tweets. No, no, no. It
0: hadn't launched yet.
1: Oh, not even the first episode or the first season? Not even the first episode. Yeah, nothing. Oh, so what was the heat that you were selling?
0: I, I think that I had been telling people about it And had been meeting a lot of people about it, and they were excited for it. And the I had kickstarted at that point, so like people had seen little tiny pieces here and there, Um, and I could talk about you know the potential in a lot of ways. But the it's it's not a really easily replicatable thing. But how do I explain this? There's a a thing about pitching that is really. It's hard to quantify, but like having status or coming from a place of authority or um, like someone being aware of your background a little bit, I think is really invaluable. If someone has heard of you or like they think of you as a peer or as a exciting filmmaker, rather than coming in cold, that um, that's invaluable, you know? But
1: is that the long way of saying that you worked at Comedy Central and you were on a panel with this person? So she instantly kind of trusted respected you. Respected me.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I would say so. Um, and I my agent knew her a little bit, and it I wasn't on the panel because of Comedy Central though. I was on the panel because I was I'd already made some web series and I had connections basically in that world, and so I could speak eloquently about like a new emerging business basically. And so Comedy Central was part of it, but, you know, it was more that people had heard that the series was good and they were excited about it, which is, you know, again, it's hard to replicate. So it's, it's I'm hesitant to really...
1: Right. Well, yeah, well, stop hesitating. No one wants to listen to us hesitate. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think, yeah, I think the point of this whole conversation is that I'm probably wrong most of the time with the advice I give. Uh, James did write back and he said that um, there's a... BBC three is like a digital BBC or it's Mm -hmm. a station. I'm sure I'm wrong, but I think it's like a television station that airs a lot of digital stuff in Mm -hmm. the UK where he's from and that their show might be a good fit for that. So, you know, there's new companies popping up and all over the place, but I guess if I was making a web series independently and already like in the throes of making it, I would just like put it up and get it out there and try to get people to see it. Um, as opposed to like try to pitch it in the middle as to try to sell it as a web series yeah. maybe if it's a tv show it's a whole different thing like i would show a high maintenance my web series to hbo and try to get them to buy it as a tv show mm-hmm. but i don't know I, I don't know how much time i would spend trying to get sponsors for my web series
0: yeah personally yeah, it's tricky i think also like if you've already made it and you've already spent the money why not just um yeah, he also the, James the calling also calling card is the value, you know.
1: Right, James also mentioned that like a local restaurant had like taken a credit and given them free food, which yes, that that is like a different <laughs> that's a different type of thing. But
0: I don't know that you need a pitch deck for that type of relationship. Yeah, yeah. kind of need a cousin uh, that knows the owner. <laughs> yeah, I think also um, just having a great trailer is is generally all of the promotional materials you need, and maybe a good one sheet you know but just like something quick and concise that they can watch and absorb really quickly that gives them the tone and style and everything because there will be circumstances where you need to kind of explain your show and someone's not going to have time to watch every single episode
1: yeah and i guess i'm not saying you shouldn't ask for sponsorship or help or try to sell it but don't don't make that a part of your business plan of making the show (laughs) yeah make the show and if that stuff happens it's great and if it doesn't then who cares because you are going to show it to people anyway yeah so our final question number four you want to read it out loud
0: yeah jacob mcpherson hi orn and matt i'm 23 and i've been assisting a wedding videographer for the last couple years it works well because it's mostly a one-day shoot on a weekend i want to start picking up crew jobs on commercials and shorts but i work full time i'm married so i can't room with a few friends and drive uber Uh, jacob listens to the show i like that that's a good point uh what jobs do you recommend what would allow me greater flexibility with my schedule how do you spend a week crewing and keep your job right now i'm only applying to one day jobs we had
1: reached out to jacob specifically because we were curious to know where he lived because this situation is a little different if you live in la or new york or chicago or one of the big film towns austin um and he wrote us back and he said he lives in sacramento uh shout which out is in california Uh, also where I'm from. That's alma mater.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Hometown.
1: Uh, But he said that he regularly drives down to Los Angeles. Okay. So I guess like the super obvious answer is (laughs) if you make your own stuff, you can control all of that, right? You can write at night, edit at night, shoot on weekends with the goal that ultimately your stuff will be good enough to get you paid so you can quit your full-time job. Uh, That is much easier said than done, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, Jacob, I think? think it's tricky, right? Because so just to to make sure that we're clear, you've got the full-time job and then you're picking up these wedding videographer gigs uh on the weekend. And so you're trying to gain more experience um on commercials and shorts, but you also want to make sure that you have your expenses covered with your full-time gig. Um so I guess there's kind of two questions really, like Are you aiming to... If you're aiming to direct and write, then... Yeah, you're right. Oren's exactly right. The answer is simple. Shoot on the weekends um, when you're not a wedding videographer and keep that full-time job, right? Because, you know, there are the realities of just needing to live, right? Um, If you're looking to crew and gain experience that way, I think that the gift of having a full-time job and picking up gigs in san francisco on the weekends um you know there are other markets that are that are close as well uh and working for free a little bit i think will get you there a little bit faster the the hard part is you know you start building out that network and before you know it they're like hey jacob you were really awesome come work with us on a friday as well and you have to turn it down because you've got the job job
1: right or you i guess what i did when i was an engineer in San Mateo, everyone I worked with, all my bosses and everyone knew that I really was into making short films. Uh, They would always be involved in them. I would like drag them into it. So Mm -hmm. I was really upfront, right? Like they had a good time, right? Yeah. And when I left the company, everyone was like excited. They're like all like the bosses and managers and everyone's like, let us know like what, like what you're doing, you know, like that sounds so fun, what you're going to, to try to do. So You know, if you have that type of manager that is excited about, you know, filmmaking and doing that stuff, maybe they'll be uh, they'll give you some leeway. You know, if you don't, one thing I just thought of that I kind of did when I first moved to L.A. is I took classes at Santa Monica College. It's like a community college. They have night classes, they have weekend classes. And I believe that most of the people that I took the classes with were either full time students or had other full time jobs. Um and so that might be like a community you can kind of try to meld into like yeah uh the other filmmakers camera people I took like an awesome lighting class when I lived in San Francisco um they had like an access cable access station that sure was te- taught people how to do things and my brother he's an engineer uh he works full time for Sony in San Francisco and he makes short films on the weekend and he has this whole film community that he met in San Francisco just people that you know all want to write and direct and make things but they're all like making a ton of money as kind of tech gurus during the day so i think i don't i don't know if that that answers anything but i think if you find that sorry my short answer is find people that are in your same situation and make stuff with them
0: yeah i, I think that's the way to go and that will get you more experience and eventually will help you transition out of this day job and into a full-time filmmaking job. Yeah. If um, that's
1: a goal, which by the way, it's totally fine if it's not the goal.
0: Totally. Okay. Yeah. And I think Sacramento is a really great town to make fun things on the weekend. It's a, it's a city filled with artists who also have day jobs, you know, um, you know, most of my friends back home are in a band or something like that. Um, and also like have a job that they really like. So uh, that's a great life as well, um, and it kind of just depends on what you want. But either way, making stuff on the weekends gets you to either goal. So, yeah. I um, would say
1: uh, one of my top three movies of 2017 was shot in Sacramento.
0: Well, it was mostly shot in Los Angeles. Are you with serious? A B, B unit in Sacramento. Yeah, uh, Lady Bomber. Bird. Yeah. Well, they did shoot some stuff. The but yeah, it's a lot of B roll. It's a lot of B roll. Uh, but. Good. To their credit, they're, like the locations are very evocative of the places that they were trying to replicate
1: cool. um, from my youth. Well, thanks, everyone, for asking us questions. I hope our answers were helpful in some way. I feel like these answers, usually I feel like our answers are like a C minus D And I think these are like in the B zone. I feel pretty good oh, about this all these right. answers. Pretty well, nice usually deal. it's like, uh, just move to L.A. and like build a network of people <laughs> <laughs> like these really vague answers. Yeah. But I think we were more specific this time. Um, cool. Anyway, well, thanks for writing us questions. If you want to ask us anything else, you can tweet at us or uh, at Just Shoot a Pod on Twitter. You can email us, just shoot Pod at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, whatever. Uh, so just reminding hey. you that we are going to do unpaid endorsements. Don't worry. But I just want to remind people that, like, we love getting the questions. And uh, even if it's not a question, like, you want to show us something, one of us tends to respond to most
0: of the emails, So. Feel free yeah. to communicate. Listen, I do a lot of stuff on the show, Oren. Oh, Orin, Oren's the one who does all the emailing. It's, well, it's,
1: it's a, Matt does the hard stuff, and I, like, give my opinions when I'm procrastinating on like <laughs> random
0: people's reels. Uh, but uh, they are uh, it's really insightful, so I'm glad it's getting done. Um, don't forget, we can also you can also leave a voicemail, 2626-SHOOT1. Love those voicemails. But also, I was going to say, if you've written in before... And uh, you have an update. I would love to hear some updates from listeners. Oh, for sure. Um, Just like kind of what's going on now. Has the advice helped? Have you figured out something even better than we said, which is pretty likely? Um, I'd love to share that stuff with listeners. So um, hit us back up, everyone. Well, let's
1: go into our
0: unpaid endorsements.
1: (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to do three real short quick ones. Number one is, just because we talked about it earlier, linchpin I did really love that book. I highly recommend it. I heard about it from this guy named Nick Campbell, who has a website called Grayscale Gorilla, and he does tutorials on Cinema 4D. And he like loves like work hacks and life hacks and like the six-hour work week and all that annoying stuff. And most of the things that he recommends, the podcast and stuff, I don't like, but this book, Lynchpin, I really loved. And it's called Lynchpin, Are You Indispensable? And it's basically about why it's important in any group of people to make yourself indispensable um i mean we all know it but it it kind of digs deep into it uh my next recommendation is a book that i when i first started working like more in more traditional commercials like let not the branded content but like real advertising like 30 second tv commercials or even like being involved like seeing like billboard campaigns and radio campaigns and all that stuff i felt like i was painfully uneducated about the advertising industry which is like a gigantic industry, uh, you know, it's way bigger than the film industry. So I kind of just looked up what books I should read, just like the primers or primers, however you pronounce it. I think it's um, primers. And one of them is Ogle it's, it's a book called Ogilvie on Advertising. Um it's by David Ogilvy, who's considered to be one of the one of the gurus of modern advertising. It's kind of an old book, but he talks about you know, like what messaging works and doesn't work in a newspaper article in a TV commercial and a radio jingle. Um, and it's just like really, it really changes the way you think about commercials when you're making them. And just a reminder of what the point of advertising is. And really at the end of the day, it's like how you can engage people in a way that informs them about your product and hopefully shows them why they should care about it. So I don't know. I, I really enjoyed Ogilvy on advertising. Last thing. Uh, it's something that just occurred to me on this Houston shoot, it's beyond obvious. I'm sure, Matt, you've always done this. I'm sure in the art department, this is like art department 101. You know, as a director, like one of the first things you do when you get to set is you set up your shot. You know, and a lot of times we start with like our master shot or our widest shot to try to figure out the scene, especially in a comedy. And there's a lot of set dressing and art deck and like this big white wall. Let's put a painting up there. Let's bring a plant or let's move here. You know, let's figure out a better camera angle. Everyone is kind of waiting on that camera angle to be set and the art to be dressed and the actors to be in place and wardrobe and makeup, right? And lighting. Then we're shooting. But something I realized on this last shoot is that the art department, you know, they're going to be working till the last second, right? They have to, especially if they only got into the location that morning, they have to dress an entire kitchen or a living room or a whatever disco party. And, they have a crew it could be a one person crew or like a 10 person crew um, and they start working on things well what i realize is that for me it like i hope that every art department does this but they should always start from the camera back right like if you're shooting someone sitting at a table and there's a couch behind them and behind them is a kitchen island behind out the window there's like some people playing like jumping on a pogo stick or whatever like you shouldn't be giving the kids the pogo stick right now you should be Figuring out what's like on the table that's like right in front of the camera, because mm-hmm. that's going to have such a huge impact on the camera angle, the camera height, the lens size, and all those things. That the pogo kid might not even be in the shot by the time we're done framing things up. And if you're working backwards, forwards towards the camera, which I think might be some people's instinct, because they want to stay out of the way,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, then you're really, you know, causing a disservice to the camera people who are trying to frame up a shot,
0: you know, and, and compos- to yourself, and, and to yourself, because like the worst thing is when you dress space that ends up not even being in play at all. Yeah,
1: for sure. That. And then also just how many times have you set up a shot that you had in your mind? You're like, I'm going to get this awesome shot. And you're like, this is just ugly. This wall looks weird or this painting looks weird or this color looks weird. And you need to reimagine the whole thing. Um, but you can't, figure out if it's going to look good or not because you know you there's no plant or whatever you're you're going to dress it with because your art team is all busy far away so right that's kind that's of my totally new easy. yeah i love that th-
0: i and i would idea. not have ever thought of that i love that yeah that's the only
1: I mean. reason i thought of it is because in this shoot there's this giant white wall and everyone's like so are we ready to go what's going on and i'm like well i honestly don't even know if the camera's going to stay here because this frame is so ugly right now and i don't know if we're going to keep it until they put this art up here, but they're working on some jars in the far background. <laughs> so I called the production designers like Robbie, get the, can we get the picture up? It's like, Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so you, said you wanted these jars though, Oren. Yeah. And I did. And I, it's weird. I've done a lot of shoots and this is the first time I really kind of thought about the order that sets should be dressed.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. Cool, man. Great stuff. Well, kind of on that tip, um, there's a great article in Filmmaker Magazine called The Seven Arts of Working in Film. Have you read this one, Warren? No. A Necessary Guide to On-Set Protocol. And it basically just kind of walks through what it's like to be on set, um, why people are acting the way they're acting, and how best to uh, learn from a set and to become a, um, a, a a linchpin, really, essentially. So it's got great tips like... Um, you know, the metaphor of the flashlight, right? So it says like, imagine that you were in a dark cave with a group of people and all of you are running around in different directions. In a corner of the cave is a flashlight, which is spinning through the room. Suddenly the flashlight lands on a single person. Everyone stops until that person does his or her job. No one can move forward. Right. So it's, it's kind of just talking about the mechanics of a set and helping you understand the hurry um, up and wait, mechanic. the, the hurry up and wait mechanic. And also, um, why things work the way they do and also how to be as respectful and smart as you possibly can so like it's simple stuff but it's it's really valuable put your stuff away put your gear away be on time take pride in the details all of that stuff so it breaks down um all sorts of different pieces of protocol and it was really great i thought it's like i wish someone had sent this to me my first day of film school Um, because I think it would have been really illuminating. And I think it's worth rereading even if you're really experienced, because it helps you kind of put a fine point on things that maybe you've thought about or learned in the past and really helps kind of solidify those ideas. So I thought it was really great. Uh, Yeah, I'm
1: skimming through it now. It looks kind of awesome. It's awesome, (laughs) right?
0: It's like, how have we not seen this? How was this not our first unpaid endorsement,
1: right? Yeah, it's from 2015. Like throw away your trash when you're on set. Yeah, (laughs) stuff like that. That's such a away. good
0: little nugget. Yeah. Um, so it's called The Seven Arts of Working in Film, A Necessary Guide to Onset Protocol. And then my other one, did we talk about this yesterday? You, I know we uh, talked about it, but not on the mic. You mentioned um, it, yeah. Uh, Search Party Season 2. You can get it all. It was on TBS. Uh, I watched it on Amazon. I paid for it, and it was worth it, you guys. Season 1 is very good, right? And, and like, it's about uh, a group of like hipsters who... Um, Become like detectives and try to find their missing friend, and uh, the cast is really incredible. Everyone's super funny. It's by the people who did Fort Tilden, which was kind of a South by Southwest darling a couple of years back, um, and it ends on a pretty big cliffhanger. And I remember thinking, well, how on earth are they gonna give us a season two? Because like season one is about solving a mystery, and so you get like a a solid answer to the question a satisfying answer to the question that of course creates bigger questions and more problems for the characters but like if season one is about finding a person and then in some sense they find the thing they're looking for what on earth could season two be about Will they nail it so season one is like kind of more nancy drew kind of like sleuthing and season two is like full-on hitchcock anxiety and, uh, oh, cool. I full on loved it. So season one is like a little slow to begin with, but then gets really good. Season two is a plus every episode through. So search party okay. season two, love it.
1: I will check it out. Maybe yeah. I'm like four episodes into season one. So right now my wife and I are like four episodes into like 10 different shows.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would say push through. Cause also in season one, you know, it's about people who are terrible and self-centered and really annoying. And so it's a little hard to care about them. But once you do and you lock into the rhythms of the show, it becomes really funny and great.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. If you guys want to endorse something to us, give us any feedback, email us, just shoot a pod at gmail.com. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We're all over the place. Leave us a review on iTunes, please. We'll read it on the show. Plug your, whatever you write, we'll read. I had to say wowee the other day.
0: Yeah, it was pretty embarrassing. Pretty (laughs) fun. I lost
1: four jobs after I read that review.
0: (laughs) Wowee. Thanks, Oren. Our music was provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. This episode was edited by Jay McAuliffe. And the webmaster is Ewan Williams. I think that's everything. That's all she wrote. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.